It was an odd place to find the Democrats. The opulent Watergate on the banks of the Potomac in downtown Washington was as Republican as the Union League Club. Its tenants included the former Attorney General of the United States, John L. Mitchell, now director of the Committee for the Re-election of the President. The former Secretary of Commerce, Maurice H. Stans, finance chairman of the President's campaign. The Republican National Chairman, Senator Robert Dole of Kansas, President Nixon's secretary, Rose Mary Woods, and Anna Cheneau, who is the widow of flying tiger ace Claire Cheneau, and a celebrated Republican hostess, plus many other prominent figures of the Nixon administration. The futuristic complex, with its serpent's teeth concrete balustrades and equally menacing prices, $100,000 for many of its two-bedroom cooperative apartments, had become the symbol of the ruling class in Richard Nixon's Washington. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to All the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Joining me today is a phenomenally talented author, a brilliant film critic, and a prodigious journalist. And she's also my best friend. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the amazing and the extremely crass Maria Lewis to All the President's Minutes. Oh my God, it's me! It's you! Oh my god, it's me though. I was like, when you started saying that, you, you, when you said phenomenal, you're like, phenomenal. I was like, oh, I was really stressed. I was really stressed. Like, some, some fucking skeleton from my closet was about to be thrown out. And um, I'm really glad it wasn't. No, we're not going to do skeletons in closets this yeah. early in the show. But let's later on, bodies buried, baby. Let's 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 throw Leave that out. Leave the reveals for the boys. <laughs> let's throw Leave this out. Leave the reveals for the watch show. <laughs> so Maria has had a very unique relationship to this show because she's heard me talk about it ad nauseum. She's helped me with uh, getting guests on the show and and thinking about it and talking about it. But also, we've kind of geeked out on great procedural journalism movies along the way and. Not a lot of folks would realize, you know, later on, if you're just a consumer of like her great film writing or pop culture writing or her, just like her books, her great series of novels that is now growing and blooming into its own like little Maria Lewis cinematic universe or book universe. What is it called? Is, should it be called the MLBU? Is that what it should be called? MLBU. Maria Lewis <laughs> book universe. That's- that's too close to a really bad Men in Black sequel, and we already had one of those. So I think I'm good. I think I'm good. Um, so, you know, you might not know that, you know, you started as a journo doing the police beat at the Gold Coast Bulletin at 16 years of age? Yes, that's right. Uh, Australia's equivalent of Washington, the Gold Coast. <laughs> <laughs> equally soiled, equally soiled. <laughs> No, but like in all seriousness, we always used to have this saying that um, in the newsroom and then later when I went to work on other newspapers in other cities that were slightly less seedy, um, that there was always a Gold Coast connection. Like no matter what the story was, whether it was like a plane crashes in Antarctica or like a sky-rise building on fire in New York or like somebody gets murdered by a guy wearing a wetsuit in Broad Beach, which is actually true. That's the thing that happened. But there was always some weird Gold Coast connection and it being such like a hellscape of a place, it is actually a really great birth ground for strange stories, like really fascinating stories, really interesting stories, a lot of cool crimes. Oh, I shouldn't say that. 
a lot of interesting <laughs> crime stories. <laughs> a lot of really weird shit goes down there. And my beat initially was like I started in general news and then transitioned into police round. And then eventually, because um, I'd always been interested in crime and like my grandfather was a homicide detective and an undercover cop for many years. Uh, so it always seemed something I was passionate about and interested in before they had the term murderino. And then after a few years working on the police beat, I moved into working in film and pop culture, which was really interesting. But when I was having police rounds, a big part of my beat was the section from Burley Heads to Byron Bay. And for a lot of your listeners who are from other places that aren't Australia, that's a very, it's basically from Chris Hemsworth to <laughs> <laughs> where they filmed Aquaman. That's essentially the distance. So it's like from, from Thor to Aquaman. From yeah. Thor to Aquaman. Yeah, that's basically if you were doing that sort of length of space, that's what it is. And that is such a strange area because you have things like, I think I covered maybe four or five plane crashes while I worked in that area over a certain set period of time. Three of them fatal with multiple fatalities, which is a weird thing. Weird. So many car accidents, so many homicides, so many whales caught in nets. Like, just, <laughs> I mean, like Sorry to laugh. Sorry to laugh, but that was story. a strange one compared to like untimely death. I know. Death. I know, but this is, this is like, this is general news. This is, I think, one of the reasons I love all the president's men so much. But this is one of the strange things about starting out as a journalist. You get assigned a beat. And if you're lucky, it's something you're interested in. Back in my day, it was if you were a cadet when you started straight out of high school, like I graduated at 16 and started work as a newspaper literally like two days later, you just got thrown into general news and then usually moved it into police grounds first because they would see if you had a mental breakdown. And if you didn't, <laughs> then you would get stuck in police rounds until you realized that you didn't actually have to say that you could have a choice over what section you worked in and the things that you're passionate about. I was there till I was 20 because I was an idiot. I was like, oh, yeah, okay. I, I guess I have to like learn ambulance codes and listen to a police scanner. And, you know, this is before social media where a lot of there's an incident and just gets tweeted out now, whereas back then you actually had to learn those codes and you had to build relationships with cops and fireys who would let you know things were afoot or let you know if there was a corruption inquiry or anything like that. So... You ended up covering... Corruption inquiries would have been thick and fast on the Gold Coast. Thick and fast. Mate. <laughs> it, it, was, it was a dark time, but, like, you would the- cover a corruption inquiry one day, and then the next thing you might cover is, like, a schnauzer had been kidnapped, which was an actual <laughs> fucking story that I covered because it was, like, a prize-winning fucking, like, special breed of schnauzer had been abducted and someone was, like, ransoming off this fucking dog and it was just like (laughs) that was the sort of place where you would cover these really weird stories and it was really unpredictable but at the same time really exciting because you could be covering something very normal and then be covering some kooky shit the next day or even the same day because you usually had to pump out you know four to five stories a day it was a daily newspaper this is exactly why my guest is on this show and before we delve into the story, for, 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 they call me the Woodward of for, the juice thing. For, for finally contrasting <laughs> the thing we wanted police corruption or corruption stories and missing schnauzers and covering them with the same fervor. That is why she's on this show. Maria and I are going to quickly have a look at the third minute of Alan J. Pakula's 1976 masterpiece. Oh, All the press. Strap yourself minute. in. What a minute. <laughs> I've made her do 
maybe the most heavy lifting of any guests Mate. that's been on the show so far and maybe for I- the rest of the show. Um, but as you can hear, uh, we really enjoy talking to one another. So uh, have a listen to the minute that we're going to now watch together. We're going to come back and we're going to talk about it and unpack it with you. President Nixon will in a moment address the Congress and the people of the United States. We're back on the record. Are we? We are now. Okay, sick. <laughs> oh, I don't, I haven't <laughs> My just, public I haven't... persona hinges on me saying <laughs> one fucking horrendous thing on air and then the whole deck of cards just come stumbling down. Okay. Oh, man. <laughs> You're doing the third mm-hmm. episode. We're recording it um, on the 8th of Jan, 2020. And I didn't really do this with one hit minute, which mentioned the date, but I think because we Don't might. Don't age co- the episode. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's just about being topical because we might cover some stuff as this show sometimes is going to lead us down the political path. I tend to do it, but it's. What up- a great time to have a podcast as we're leading into world war three. I mean, <laughs> how beneficial for you. What a time. What a time indeed. And look for our American friends and also just the entire Western world. I didn't intend necessarily uh, to, to have this be so timely, um, but there would be no other time. There's no other film that I want to talk about more. Does this remind you? Of you know film? who was the OG cancellation? Fucking Nixon. <laughs> OG cancelled. That's where cancel culture started, baby. Nixon's cancelled, baby. Um, baby, controversial take. Hot take. Nixon, he cancelled. <laughs> I have a question, which is there's the American remake of State of Play, I think is one movie that I've seen do this really well. Which oh, is that I love were, that you bring this up. Yes, jerk this gherkin, I'm in. They were able to contrast, and so it's not really reflected in this minute just as a moment, but I really wanted to talk to you about it in this episode, which is it was a really good film subject for contrasting old school journalism so the guys and the people who who are maybe even cadets in this, who are pre-populating this newsroom that we're going to see later on in this movie now versus, you know, the sort of omnipresent internet journalism that comes later. And this, the classic dichotomy is like overweight, heavy smoking, snack eating, you know, crumbs all over his shirt, Russell Crowe versus very clean cut, you know, uh, green, turtleneck, naive, turtleneck, Rachel McAdams. <laughs> and so I just wondered because we sort of, we, we sort of landed on some funniness with your journalistic experience with the Gold Coast. But I just wondered, like, was that something you were seeing as it was happening? Because I would imagine that that would have been just right on time to be like old school and new school clashing together. Yeah, it was actually really interesting because um, – when I, well, okay, I'll make a State of Play reference first because I fucking love that television series. I think it's one of the greatest mini-series ever made. If you never had a chance to watch the British original, I definitely recommend you do. 
James McAvoy is in there. It's kind of like one of his early sort of roles and very interesting. But the movie adaptation, I thought, as well, was really, really fucking excellent. came out in 2009. And I remember watching, I saw the movie version first and then had gone back and watched the TV series. The British miniseries was a little bit before my time. But I remember um, one of the things that struck me immediately because I, this was like right when I was like balls deep in working in daily, like working for a daily newspaper, was Russell Crowe's, um, he was basically trying to do like a version of Justin Hoffman yes. in All the President's Men with the hair and like, you know, obviously they always talk about Dustin Hoffman in the film, he's like smoking constantly, right? Like he's just always got a bag in his hand because that was one of the things famously that Carl Bernstein is that he was somebody who was smoking constantly. So he always had ashes and shit like down his tie <laughs> and on his shirt and on his pants and blah, blah, blah. But when um, Russell Crowe's character, I think Cal, is in the car, his car's just an absolute like chaotic demon yes. it's just a mess there's like John food packets in there but there's also notepads there's reference books there's phone books there's map books all that kind of stuff and that was like such an authentic detail because that is a hundred percent exactly especially at the time exactly how it was your cars were your moving office I had a mobile police scanner which you could just pick up a regular scanner from JB JB Hi-Fi which is like a, um, a tech and hardware store here in Australia if you knew what channels you needed to program in, most of the ambulance, fireys, police channels, water police channels, all that shit were public record or if not public record, not that hard to find. So if you were out on another job or if you were like kind of having a shitty weekend and trying to sort of, you know, jag your way onto someone you're else's story. you fucking Danny Trejo from Heat listening out for the police, <laughs> for the police reaction. You know what? I get compared to Danny Trio way more than you would get. Um, <laughs> but you would have that police scanner in your car going at all times instead of the radio. You'd have backup notepads in there. This was before um, you had GPS on your phone. So I had all these fucking map books in there where if you were going to a job, you had this fucking work too because I just got my license. So you're like, you're in a manual or six for the American listeners, driving a fucking car for like your first year of driving a car. Um, and also, like, trying to figure out where you're going under high-pressure circumstances. Like, there was one time I had to go out to a light uh, plane crash that was in Pimpermar, which is, like, for those people using the Hemsworth to Aquaman ratio, would be approximately 25 minutes north of Aquaman. <laughs> and, like, this massive cornfield and just being out on this fucking country road with my tank light flashing on empty thinking, I'm not going to make it to the fucking plane crash because I'm lost in a cornfield. Ironically, the plane crash was in a cornfield, so I was, like, right on target. But that kind of stuff is extremely stressful and very specific and such a, such a, a learned detail, and I really enjoyed that in state of play when that was in there. And it's the same with all the president's men as well. There's so many learned details in there, and that dichotomy as well between, you know, transitioning back into state of play and fucking flip-flopping, but the Rachel McAdams in a turtleneck uh, versus Russell De Hoffman, shall we say, Russell Hoffman. Um, that was happening right as I, like, I came in at this period where it was maybe the last five to six good years of traditional print journalism. The downturn didn't really start until I'd been at the newspaper for at least six years. I was the first online um, reporter at the newspaper, like the first person to write stories for online and start producing content movie reviews ironically 
exclusively for the Gold Coast Bulletin online website, but people weren't getting fired yet. We still had like a massive pool of sub editors. You still had like a massive two level newsroom. And by the time I left, it had gotten to this really depressing state where we were in like a huge, big old warehouse, not sort of like a dissimilar building to the Washington Post building. I mean, the roof was full of asbestos, so they had that in common. <laughs> but the, the printing press was on site. They didn't outsource. They had the printing press right there next to the newspaper's office. So you could finish your story, file, somebody would be subbing it or whatever, or the subs on the back bench would be working through it with you. You could see the page placement, where the story was going to sit, what pictures were going with it. If the picture got cut, then you knew you are in trouble because it meant, like, your copy was getting cut next. <laughs> and, like... It always needed to have a fucking good image um, or text. And when it was done, you could physically walk over to the printing press because the car park was like, it was the newspaper office, a little bit of a hill, and the car park was at the bottom of the hill, and the printing press was right next to it. So you could walk into that factory and watch the newspapers physically being made Amazing. in a way that is really hard now. Like, there will be six or seven different competing newspapers now they will all get printed in the same factory because that's a way to cut costs. And even the amounts that are being printed is considerably smaller. And, like, you know, we were – Gold Coast is not a regional paper, as, but not quite a city paper. It's not quite a metro. It's sort of, like, in between. But you could write a story there and you could see it have actual impact. You could see a story have and affect real change in a way that was very interesting and – before I left, you would walk through that newsroom and whole sections of the building would be dark. The lights would be off because nobody worked in that section of the building anymore. People had been fired. People had been made redundant. They were shutting down. They were downsizing. Things were changing. And um, now that building doesn't exist anymore. It got demolished, including the printing press. Very weird. It was a very interesting time to be getting into journalism. And they also, just the kind of training that we got, you know, which is essentially like, let's see how they go uh, or who cracks with PTSD first. <laughs> That's not the kind of thing they do anymore. They don't train. There's, there's very few initiatives for training journalists um, anymore, which is really sad. There's a few papers and a few online outlets that do it, but it's just one of those things that like unbelievably valuable having the stamina, but also having to get over that hurdle and have the ball to like to call people up minimum call people up but like physically go somewhere you know do a death knock which for people who don't know what that is it's a really fucked and horrible thing and it used to be the thing that every police reporter especially but even if you were a general news reporter and maybe you got assigned to a police shift or there was a really big incident where they had to pull multiple reporters um if you got the name of a deceased person you'd have to go to that deceased person's family home knock on the door and ask the family to give you comments and this could be under any circumstances. It could be an accident. It could be a car crash. It could be a murder. I had to go, isn't it funny? Um, I had to go and do a death knock. Well, not a death knock, but like kind of a reverse death knock, maybe a murder knock. I had to go to the, um, the family home of an alleged murderer um, who had killed two brothers the night before with a machete and a butcher's knife at a party that had been in a park. I had to go to their house at like, nine o'clock at night um, on a Sunday evening to see if we could get comments from the family. Just all sorts of crazy shit. I was fucking 17 years old. Like that's a, that's a hor horrendous thing to make somebody do. But in the context, 
completely normal. Everybody in the newspaper had those stories. There were so many teenagers working at the newspapers. That was just, that was your rite of passage, well, when, your baptism of fire. Well, when, you know, to bring it back to all the presidents, it's not the minute that you're talking about, but it's a wonderful minute in, and and it probably would have been a minute that I would have had Maria come in and talk about if I didn't want her to be on the show so early is, there's that great minute where they talk about that, Woodward had only been in the office and, and had only been a practicing journalist for the Washington Post for nine months. And mm. Bernstein's sort of, you know, credentials are that he's been in the office since he was 16. And it was always a thing that struck me because of this movie I saw before we were before we were friends. We've been friends for many years and it's a film that I've watched since. And it's kind of only knowing you and understanding a little bit about some of the stuff that you've just talked about and that we've spoken about casually, not in this sort of setting, but to understand that like, wow, like, 16 for a journalist can is actually real. It's not just like this anomaly. It's as you have these young journalists who are cadets and they go straight in and, and like they're in the thick of it. And like you said, there's that whole like sink or swim mentality. And despite it's, I don't know, despite it's, it's some, it grates on some people and f- might freak other people out. But it, it, I think it makes you, it, it sort of made you the great journalist that you were slash are when you, when you try your tools at it because you've, you know, when you're writing about pop culture in a film review, the stakes are obviously way lower than a death knock at 9 p.m. on an alleged murderer's family. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> and like, you know, you get death threats because you wrote a piece about how this Joker got things wrong about beauty. <laughs> and it truly doesn't seem that bad in hindsight when you think about the other shit that you've done. Like, I'm not saying getting three weeks worth of death and rape threats because they were mad that I said the Joker didn't know how to contour accurate, but <laughs> that didn't suck, but it's just a completely different animal and it just like really puts things in perspective. But also, you know, I started when I was 16. Uh, my colleague, the other junior police reporter was 17. The other one was 19. Uh, like the other, the two senior people above us, I think she was 26 or 27 and, like, our big, big police boss, he was about, like, you know, maybe late 40s, early 50s or thereabouts. That editor at the time had started in a newspaper when he was 13. He dropped out of high school and worked in a newspaper. And all those stories were, like, super common. That's, like, an incredibly normal thing. It was a normal thing at the time. Not so much now. You, you know, fucking finish high school or whatever, go to uni, and then try and get into journalism by doing an unpaid internship for 20 years. Um, and that's the reality that journalists and aspiring journalists face now. Unpaid very internship different. for 20 years. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I mean, that's what they fucking want you to do. But the reality is very different for, you know, a different type of byline and a different type of publication. And the goals and the objectives are very different. But at that time, teenage journalists covering heavy shit, not uncommon. And, People cycling out of rounds, I never really understood when I first started. One of my mentors was um, this really badass court reporter and she had been a police reporter for like 20 years and they were always, she just built up an amazing like list of contacts and an amazing network of people and people just trusted her. She would get scoops or hear things from sources that would go past all the other police reporters and go straight to her because people had trusted her for years and years because of her reputation and I'd never really understood at the time why she was like she was really anti getting back into the police round and I never really got it because she was like she liked court 
you know, she had a kid, she could get out at a certain time, court hours are very specific. You know if there's a big fucking trial coming up that you can just like, okay, this week's going to be shit. So, you know, you can strap yourself in. Police is really unpredictable. Um, or really, you would never want to say the Q word. You never want to say quiet because the second somebody said the Q word, something <laughs> would fucking <laughs> something horrible explodes. would happen. Some horrible thing horrible. that takes your whole life oh. is going to happen. Oh, my God. For realsies. Um, and I'd never got it. And then after having done it for like, you know, three and a half, almost four years, I was like, oh, I get it. It's not about, you know, the satisfaction of a front. You get a front page for the first time. You're like, oh, fucking lady. Like, I fucking made it. Back on that. <laughs> Just kidding. I was getting paid less than a checkout check. But um, you think it's a huge deal and it's so important and it's so significant and it is at the time, but then, you know, you've had your 10th or your 12th or your 15th or your 50th or your 100th front page and it's not that big a deal anymore. And at the end of the day, you still have to go home and have a life and find something that gives you happiness. And for me, police rounds is not it. Writing about other people's art and things that they made, whether it was a TV show or a film or whatever the fuck, that was the thing that made me really happy. And the stakes were lower, but they were no less important to me in a weird way. So let's talk about this great art then. Unfortunately, oh, it, star- we- unfortunately oh. it starts with the archival footage of Richard Nixon's face. Can I just say, <laughs> um, I fucking had to do so much extracurricular research <laughs> just so I could make it interesting to talk about a fucking minute where the screen was black for 70% of it. I was watching the hearing. I was fucking listening to the Nixon tape. Yo, I watched the newspaper man, the Ben Bradley doco. I was like <laughs> going so deep because I was like, Love you. This Blake has completely bent me over a barrel and I've got to try and make this episode interesting where it's his ugly face to start with and then it's just like a torch in the dark and you're like, what a moment. <laughs> hey, some good font and some interesting factoids. Some of okay. them we learned off. Some of them we've, we, we've, is sort of in the half ass internet research realm as we would, uh, oh. as both of us fans of the, the Ringer podcast. Shout out work. the Ringer. Shout out the Ringer. Um, which is the great interesting thing, which is that it is a, a Redford and Pacula film. They take dual billing on the production mm. of it. And the most important thing is, Dustin Hoffman's name before Robert Redford's. Yeah, but he negotiated that. Yeah, I know. They, ne- have, yeah, yeah, they they negotiated it that he would be the first in the credits, and on the poster, Redford's name would be first. Yeah, but for for I what? Mean, what if? It's such a funny thing when you had dueling leading men in films, and there's been big ones like I think it's the Towering Inferno with Paul um, with Steve McQueen and. Um, and uh, Paul Newman, where like, I was thinking, um, Demolition Man, <laughs> <laughs> that too. But no, it's one of those. Not thi- alone. It's, it's one of it's one of those things where uh, the rumor was that in the Towering Inferno, they were literally going with their with their representatives line by line through the script and making sure that they had the exact same amount of words to say in the script. Fuck, that's so, that's such like that's some anal Crazy, bullshit. Craziness, because it's not it's not about the words. It's about, anyway. I'm gonna get into it. About the beats as well, like what that character gets to say, how they say it, not how fucking often they're speaking. God damn. I mean, look at this movie. Think how many lines that um, Hoffman and Redford have compared to fucking like Ben Bradley. Robards, yeah. Jason oh, Robards. Jason Robards is my absolute favorite. I love him so much. <laughs> His voice 
the way he tweaked his voice to basically mimic Ben Bradley is fucking insane. It's crazy. Like, their voices sound identical. Yeah, I get it. Librarian and secretary say Hunt looked at a book. That's not good, now. White House aide told me that Hunt was investigating Kennedy. Who was it? Who was it? You want the name, you mean? No, no. How senior? How high up? I don't know titles. And they weirdly look quite a bit alike. Like, it's just not. But compare his amount of lines to, like, Hoffman and Redford, he has less lines, but I'd argue that somebody you probably walk away from the movie really remembering, really remembering what oh, a lasting impression there, he's there's, done. There's people in this movie who have way less lines than the two leading characters. And, you know, one of them is, um, I love. Sally! Yeah, I was, Sorry, just, Sally. I was just about to say, Penny, <laughs> Penny full of Sally Aitken. She's a mate, yeah. like unforgettable. Um, Jane Alexander, who plays the bookkeeper, mm, unbelievable, yeah, unbelievable. Um, and yeah, Bradley, of course. And like you get like Jack Warden and Martin Balsam. They play mm. Harry Rosenfeld and Howard Simons. They both have a lot of lines, but Bradley's got the killer lines. Bradley's yeah. got the well, bombs that drop. Bradley's got all the good shit. Fuck Ben Bradley. <laughs> like this, 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 all the really great stuff. And you know, things like the posters on the wall that say ambiguity is bullshit. And just like, you know, little details like that. I got really, if if people are listening to this pod and want to take a bit of a deep dive um, into some other pop culture that is sort of like tangential to the storyline, HBO did a really good docker called The Newspaper Man a few years ago. One of the great editors of our time, Ben Bradley of the Washington Post, recounts his life at the center of some of this country's biggest moments in the last half of the 20th century. He basically wanted to get the facts out and tell the truth. To let the people know what went on at the most critical part of their history in the 20th century. Ben's great bet noir was public officials who lied. The role of the press in the Watergate affair is being contested almost as hotly as the fate of Richard Nixon. It really was the Washington Post versus Richard Nixon. Go about our business, which is not to be loved, but to uh, go after the truth. And it was essentially half adaptation of Ben Bradley's memoir, half uh, kind of like really interesting and quite critical documentary about him and his life and his start as a foreign correspondent and him just being like a mad pussy hound and like his <laughs> friendship with JFK and obviously like the oh, pussy hounds, pussy hounds attract pussy hounds by the sounds of things. I mean, <laughs> yeah, but it was like some grim shit. And, um, you know, they talk about the Pentagon Papers stuff, obviously, which is covered, uh, you know, in the post with Meryl Streep and Tom Hanks, but they do all the presence men. They also look at Jimmy's World, which is like one of the big, you know, sort of cautionary tales about newsroom fast-paced environments and fake sourcing and is kind of touched on briefly in the, uh, the fifth season of The Wire with Tom McCarthy's character. Is it Tom McCarthy? Tom McCarthy's character who goes on to direct yeah, Spotlight? Yeah, Tom McCarthy and, yeah, he yeah, becomes the director of Spotlight after that. And, he's, yeah. and, he, and he gets to be the journalist who, despite how incongruous the facts appear to be, just continues to run along with it because he's looking at his eye on a P -P Pulitzer Prize. That's all he can give a shit about. But that is literally based on the Janet Cook stuff with Jimmy's World. That was a thing that 
happened um, sort of like under Ben Bradley and Bob Woodward's um, editorship at the Post. So it's a really amazing documentary, but there's so much interesting stuff in there too about when all the president's men came out and how um, the kind of like relationship that Jason Robards and Ben Bradley had and how they were saying there were things that Jason Robards did in the movie, like the way he moved his arm and stuff that they saw Ben Bradley doing in the newsroom after that. <laughs> like he was sort of like mimicking the acting that was mimicking him and like that weird, this weird way he'd put his leg up on the desk and shit, like just, you know, very masculine and just, yeah, really interesting. It was a fascinating doco and like a really intriguing insight into some of like the behind the scenes stuff of, of this story. Because the thing about All the President's Men is it's such a snapshot. They're not trying to tell the whole epic scale. They're not doing Lord of the Rings trilogy. They're not doing the whole fucking Battle for they're Middle partic- Earth. They're particularly not doing the fucking Hobbit trilogy. That's particularly yeah. what they're not doing. <laughs> they're not doing the Battle for Middle Earth. They're doing the Battle of Helmsteed. That's the focus of this movie. It's such a tight snapshot of events. And I think that's what people love about it, but it's also what people frustrates people about it because the, where the movie ends, they, they want more, you know, and where it starts, they want more. It's like, fuck, how much more can you get? It's like a lot of stuff to fit in there, you know? <laughs> it's already a long-ass movie. How long do you want? So I've given you all the, the heavy lifting, uh, a black screen, some del- delightful fonts, some archival footage, yep. a torch in the dark. Can yep. you can you go to... Have I ever used a torch in the dark? Is that what you're going to ask? <laughs> no. I was going to ask you. Uh, what's the dictionary definition no, of torch? No, we've talked a lot around of your, your thorough journalistic practices of research, mm. but I want to talk to you about this movie because you're a, you're a film nerd who goes back and revisits it. You would have definitely rewatched it in the preparation for this. What are you cur- like? Where are you sitting now with it? And when was the first time that you saw it? And when you did see it, I'm interested in what your thoughts were. I was off sick from school. I was in primary school. And Channel 7 had it as a midday movie, <laughs> Great. which basically took a week because once you factor in, you <laughs> know, breaks. the fucking, the ad breaks, and, bro, the and, ad breaks. And, and uh, what is it called? Like a, where they advertise you products and they take like their oh. even longer ad breaks. Yeah. Yeah. It was the worst. So I remember after I watched it, like going in to talk to my granddad, because he was always the source of any kind of like I wanted to know about murder, I wanted to know about exploited serial killer, I'm not four, like, you know, whatever horrible shit that you shouldn't be telling a child, he was always my <laughs> go to source for it. So I went in and I was like, Can you tell me about Nixon? Because I was like really interested. And he was like giving, you know, this ten year old a breakdown of Nixon and Watergate <laughs> and Vietnam and And I know and I know your granddad and he's quite the uh colourful uh descriptive <laughs> uh, man, so I can imagine yeah. he didn't sh- exactly sugarcoat his thoughts on Nixon. No, he didn't like Nixon at all, and he had worked briefly with one of Nixon's like security aides who had come out to New Zealand at a certain sort of time when they were guarding somebody else. I'm not getting too specific, so it's like guess who don't do. But it was one of those things. So I was like, man, that movie's really cool, and it started this obsession of mine, which was an obsession within an obsession, film being the obsession, my obsession within the obsession being like process porn. I really love shit that has very detailed depictions of process. State of Play, the television series, and State of Play, the movie, both do that really well. Zodiac does that really well. Spotlight mm-hmm. does that amazingly well. But All the President's Men was the first time I saw an example of that 
on the big screen. And I was just obsessed. Like it was something that I was really obsessed with. And I rewatch it so often. I have this cycle that I go into, which I'm in right now because I'm on book deadline, where I like to have sort of this like 10 to 12 films that I will just put on that are on repeat in the background almost the entire time I'm writing a book, if it's a possibility. Like if I have a, a screen or a television handy where I can do that. And All the President's Men is one of those movies, like Silence is a Land, which, you know, is <laughs> a same kind of movie. It's process porn to me. You know, like that sort of meticulous chasing of facts and like following a paper trail and making connections and that kind of stuff is just so satisfying to me. And it's one of the reasons I love the movie so much and it has never really waned for me in my love. I started out loving it and I've continued loving it. There are probably other movies that I like about journalism more. Spotlight would be one of those for me. Like Spotlight is um, would be in that 10 to 12 movies that are just always on in the background if I'm working on a book. But I just think it's one of those things where it's one of those movies like Heat, as much as I expect. I'm not the biggest Heat fan. <laughs> but Heat is a movie that came out and got its big dick on the table and then influenced a legion of other films in an entire genre after the fact. And that's the same thing with All the President's Men. It came, it conquered, it dropped its huge dick on the table. Or a huge clip, like 2020, keep it modern. <laughs> um, and influenced and changed so much of pop culture. I don't care where you had the conversation with Sally Aiken. <laughs> I care what you said, Sally Aiken. <laughs> uh, speaking of clits. She looks uh, all the better for it. What I want to say, though, is, and uh, this is something that you just touched on, which I think is going to come up in the rest of the film, but you put it in such a, like, a just matter-of-fact way, which is it's, the, it's not only processed porn, or people necessarily being good at their jobs, because I think those things are going to come up as we talk about this movie, but it's the patience. And I think one of the things that the inference and the patience and in pretty much all the examples that you just used, particularly Silence of the Lambs, which people not necessarily wouldn't associate, but they are great detective tales, um, Zodiac and All the President's Men, and Zodiac made by David Fincher, who is obsessed with... William Goldman and is a mentee of William Goldman and thinks the greatest film ever made is Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, which is William Goldman's film that got him the job on All the President's Men. And when I look at that, I think what they share is an approach to to fail in the process. And that's what I love about Silence of the Lands. What I love about Zodiac is that there are also colossal roadblocks, huge traffic jams, failures and then these massive breakthroughs that come often by luck or osmosis or just instant collaboration or something to finally put the puzzle pieces together particularly that happens in zodiac definitely happens in silence and absolutely happens in all the presidents and i just think that that's one of those things that i definitely want to continue to explore on the show is that it's not just being effortless with process because that is fucking boring as batshit and i think what makes this movie so infinitely rewatchable is the moments where they actually have to double back and go through the process again when the process isn't working anymore because they have to sanity check that they're doing the right thing. And the tedium of that, you know, yes. people try and sort of like romanticize journalism and as this sort of like heroic, you know, <laughs> tape flapping in the wind type of job. And a lot of times it's really fucking tedious. You're eating shit food, you're working shit hours, you look like shit. And it's just, 
you just have to put the hours in. You just have to tick off the tasks. I mean, there's so much stuff here. Them knocking on people's doors, them calling people, them calling people and conducting interviews when they already have the same information from three other sources, mm. but they're checking it. And then when people are telling them that story, they're asking questions to try and poke holes in that person's perspective or that person's account. So that can lead them down another hole or down another trail. And that is, it's not glamorous work. It's not romantic at all. It's just, it's, it's really hard and it takes like a lot of gumption. And there's some of the best journalists I know. One of the reasons they're so good, besides the fact that they're good fucking writers, but specifically good with dealing with people. I think that's one of the most underrated traits of journalism is, yeah, okay, you've got to be able to put a sentence together. But also this, you have editors and you work with other people to help you like, sculpt the paragraphs and sculpt the story and work out how to write a good lead and how to like, you know, not bury the good shit in paragraph five to make sure it's up the top and how to not absolutely throw yourself off a bridge when they've cut your story from 30 centimeters to 10 or, you know, whatever. But it's dealing with people and being able to sense weakness and being able to sense when somebody wants to tell you something and being able to fucking talk your way into a house and chat with a woman for six hours like Dustin Hoffman does. Um, Stuff like that, that is a really sort of different type of skill set and something that is a combination of being learned behavior, but also something that you're either born with or you're not. There are people who are good researchers and then there are people who are really good at building contacts and building sources. And sometimes you have both, sometimes you don't. There was this one time, it, it was actually on the story, my very, it was the very first fatal that I ever covered, which was the, the murder story where I had to go knock on the fucking family of this guy who got convicted, by the way. I was about to say alleged murderer, but he got convicted. So I can say that. And it was like, you know, <laughs> 15 years ago. Guess but, who, um, don't sue. That's a, the new <laughs> motto of this episode. I'm being very careful not to say the location of where this murder took place. So just like keep it vague and shit. But, um, it had happened on a Saturday night and I was working for Sunday morning shift. It was a really slow, it was a slow day and you know it was a slow day because the fucking 16 year old, actually I think I turned 17 by that time, the 17 year old got put on the like, you know, stabbed a bunch of people in a park um, with multiple weapons story. So we drove up to this place, just just down the Gold Coast and we had nothing. Like there was like witnesses and shit, but you know, nobody knew who they were. This had been reported quite late at night over the scanner, so no one was in the newsroom. We just, there was like a very small press release that had been faxed, faxed through to the newsroom <laughs> saying that, hey, you know, there was a bit of stabbing going on and uh, two people are dead and we have the person in custody. Um, you know, peace out, uh, as they said in summary. And so we drove up to the police station and went in to just try and talk to the cops. And this was a police station that wasn't in the regional area that I covered. So we didn't have any contacts there, didn't know anyone where you could be like, you know, Oi Shaza, like, what, what do you reckon? You can ask the constable <laughs> if, if we can get a line or, you, you know, someone we can talk to or any of that kind of stuff. And you know, nobody, go in, please, rude, um, which is their right to be rude, like, get the fuck out of the way, journalists are super annoying. So we left and um, was walking and I was, just, was with, with this photographer who fucking hated me. Um, consistently. We ended up becoming friends in the end. What a beautiful story. But he was like this 55-year-old chain-smoking guy who drove a convertible. And so you could never like like stealthily do a stakeout because you're always stuck in a fucking convertible with a side <laughs> who had 
a midlife crisis and was like chugging diaries. But um, I said to him, can you go away in the car? I'm just going to do a lap of this park because the police station was right next to the park where the murder had taken place. I was just going to have a look around and see what I could see. There were a few people lingering in the park, so I chatted to them, asked if they heard anything, you know, that kind of stuff. And it was like, no, 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 yes, no. And I got a little bit of information and it was enough to sort of keep going. And as I was walking back to the car, there was a, a bend in the park and there was like all this fucking paper, like as if someone had put, like someone had gotten a piece of paper and just torn it to shreds, right? And so all this paper was like blowing over the grass and a little bit of it caught on my shoe and it was uh, like the logo, the Queensland Police logo, like they have like a little emblem and I recognised it. And I was like, what the fuck is this? Like this police aren't like, they've got bins and shredders, you know what I mean? They're not like popping yeah. out to the park to like dump some trash. And so I, I started picking up all of the little pieces of the paper that I could find because the bin was so full whoever this person had been had ripped up the paper, went to throw it in the bin, had just gone all over the park. So I picked up all the little pieces of paper, got back to the newsroom, sticky taped them all together. And what the piece of paper ended up being was an eyewitness statement from one of five people who had been there in the park when the dude came in and murdered the two people. And it was his full detailed description of everything that had happened. After he had given the statement to the police, they have to give you a, a record of that, like a physical record of what you said. Wow. And so he'd obviously done this statement and then just been like, you know, fuck the popo or whatever and torn it up. And um, and obviously you can't use any of that statement because it's, you know, protected and privileged and all this kind of stuff. But it was the starting point because it gave us the names of everybody involved. It gave us locations. It gave us times. It gave us other witnesses. It gave us police officers who were in charge and handling the case that I could call and ask for by name it essentially gave us the whole story and it was just one of those things where it's like any other day you might have walked past that piece of paper but say they'd given us a statement at the police station we'd been like yeah sick let's bounce like this is enough we can get 25 centimeters from this but because they'd given us nothing and we were desperate and we were looking for anything that we could find we went through a stroll through a path and then literally tripped over somebody's eyewitness testimony i don't know there's a lot of stuff like that where it's just like if you were busier or you had extra stories to do or another schnauzer had been kidnapped, <laughs> maybe you wouldn't go back to a newsroom and sticky tape that statement together. Well, I think that's all I'm going to make my very talented guest talk about today. And I'm going to just... Wait, uh, you don't want to talk me to talk about the specific shade of black? You've, that we look at <laughs> for fucking 45 well, seconds? Well, look, you've, you've, cl- you've, cl- you've clearly done your due diligence. What I would say is one of my highlights of the episode is guess who don't sue. And the other thing I wanted to talk about really just quickly in in summation is you're not wrong about the ability to get people to talk or just want to chat. And one last anecdote, I will leave my amazing friend, Maria Lewis, exceptionally talented podcaster extraordinaire too. We're collaborating on another podcast you can listen to, another One Heat Minute production called Josie and the Podcats, which you guys will be able to hear very soon. Um, But uh, there's a local cafe near my house, and I reckon I'd been in there about nine to ten times. And I'm not an unrecognizable person. I have a beard. Uh, I'm usually in there with... Oh, of course. (laughs) The back 
symbol of faith. I have a beard. Uh, you know, I've got some. You know, I've got a, a bump on my nose. My my kids are very adorable, and I reckon I've been to this cafe like eight or nine times in the time that I lived here. Anyway. My very talented guest, just before we go out, this must be her, like, her journalism uh, talents coming to, was in the cafe maybe once and became suddenly best friends with, like, the barista or the waitress or something. And the next time that I went to the cafe, this is now my 10th time going in the cafe, she that she walks in there like, Maria, it's nice to see you. And Maria kindly sort of goes, oh, yeah, and this is my friend Blake. And they're like, oh. Oh, hi. Do you live around here? And I'm like, I've been here 10 times. <laughs> and since that day, I've never gone back. So uh, that maybe is why she's a prodigious journalist and I'm just a film critic and a podcaster. But Maria Lewis, thank you so much for being a part of all the President's Minutes and all your help behind the scenes. Blake. Ambiguity is bullshit. <laughs> honor to be here. Honor to be here and befriend your local baristas. And look, you know some of the guests that are coming up. I do. And, I and, do. And one of them you wanted to leave a special message for. Would you like yes. to say that now? I just want to say, actually, I'll say two messages because I feel like I was, we were talking about some of your guests and I've, worked with them in a journalistic capacity <laughs> at so many so many different levels of journalists like oh, I worked with this person at this newspaper oh man I worked with this person at this online publication that we both hated um, or oh, I worked with this person on that show at SBS which is the case with the wonderful Mark Humphrey who I have to say is the perfect guest to have on a podcast about all the president's men because he has the physical uh physical makeup and stature of a Nixon staffer that would <laughs> for sure be involved in a cover-up. I remember when Trump got elected, it was like fucking, it was A, horrible and people crying in the newsroom, but B, really exciting um, for storytelling purposes because we knew that we could have Mark Humphreys portray anyone as the Trump children at any time <laughs> if we needed him to in a skit. So Nixon staffer extraordinaire campaign to re-elect my country's love it like the washington post coverage of watergate this podcast is a result of a collaborative effort with amazing guests like maria lewis amazing future guests like mr mark Humphreys. thank you so much to maria for being a part of the show thank you so much to holly mcbride who once again has taken the role of narrator and thank you all for listening please subscribe rate and review to everything that we're doing on one heat minute productions whether that's all the president's minutes or increment vice oneheatminute.com is where you need to go for everything and please if you do have a few extra bucks we'd love you to be a patron um, of the show and uh, for as little as three bucks a month um, you can uh, continue to support the amazing podcast that we're producing now and will continue to produce in the future thank you so much for listening thank you everyone uh, for tweeting along if you want to follow us on twitter it's at atpm pod on twitter if you want to follow increment vice it's at increment vice i-n-c-r-e-m-e-n-t vice all one word and it's at movie maz for my lovely guest today maria lewis and at one blake minute on twitter and remember woodward It's National Democratic Headquarters.